Welcome to Pop Culture Confessions, a podcast where we fix our greatest movie mistakes. I'm Ryan, and I'm joined by Amanda. Hey! And Hannah. Hello! So, on this podcast, we try and pick movies that we have, for one reason or another, missed seeing, that are the type of movies that you really should have seen, that most of your friends have seen, that maybe you don't even want to tell people you haven't seen, because it would be awkward, so you just kind of smile and nod along when you hear the title. But we are here to fix that. We confess to a movie we haven't seen, we watch it, we talk about it and increase our knowledge of movies. And we do not shame each other. Mm-mm, no shame zone. We try real hard. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't always succeed, but the effort is there. Yes, our intentions are good. So last week we talked about Amanda's pop culture confession, Misery, and I made a confession of my own. So as Spookytober draws to a close here, I think I've had plenty of frights and chills, and I think I need... <laughs> You're too spooked. I'm too spooked. <laughs> too spooky. I've had enough blood spattered gore and intense psychological thrills, and mm-hmm. I'm ready for a little palate cleanser here. Yeah, I think we all are. So... Yeah. This is a movie that I have not seen because it's too good. This is kind of... Okay. Uh, yeah. So it's, it's one of those movies that I've heard everyone rave about that it's amazing, right? And I haven't had the time to sit down and I think like watch it and enjoy it as much as I think it should be. So it's either going to be really living up to that or I've set a really high bar and it's going to not <laughs> live up to that. So hmm. yeah, I'm super curious about this now. I color me intrigued. <laughs> Well, I feel like this is a place that I can come to with these kind of confessions. and I don't know what gives you that impression, but okay, <laughs> go ahead. <laughs> We're expectant and we are holding you in our safe space, <laughs> no shame zone, arms. In this comforting sort of couch-like safe, warm <laughs> uh-huh. place. Yeah, like over my head, there's a a nice picture of a forest. No spooks anywhere near. It's not a spooky forest. Sounds great. So I have never seen The Iron Giant. (gasps) Oh, Iron Giant is so good. Sorry. (laughs) Our reactions are totally reinforcing. (laughs) No. Oh, my God. I'm so excited. Yeah. Yay. I'm glad about this. We've both seen it. Yes. Oh, I, I love this movie so much. Yes. Yes. I'm excited. Love it. <laughs> love this movie. Your reaction is exactly the reaction that everyone who's seen this has. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's how I felt about Shawshank before we watched it. I was like, basically all I know about it is that it's like everyone's favorite movie. And I don't know why. <laughs> all I know about this is it's supposed to be, we've said it before, those movies that are really good. Like I know it's really good. I know Vin Diesel is like the voice of the giant. Yes. And yep. uh, Brad Bird yes. is the director. Those are the three things that I know about it. But I don't know <laughs> plot. I don't know really anything about it other than those okay. things. Okay. All right. So let's pull up a movie poster. Let's do that. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to remember what else I know about, th- or what else I remember about this movie. It's been out a while, right? Like it's not a- Came in 99. 99. Wow. It's older than I thought it was. Mm-hmm. Wow, I did not realize it was from the 90s. My recollection of this was not a big, like, commercial hit. So I think it kind of snuck under my radar. No, it was not, Mm -mm. for sure. Yeah, I did not see it when it was in theaters. I think I saw it later, just after I had heard buzz about it. I don't know which one is the original. I'm looking at the posters. I don't know which one is the original Iron Giant poster. On IMDb, that's not the original. So much fan art, yeah. Yeah, there's so many of them. There's so much, like, it all looks like fan art, basically. 
here. I'm finding one on Amazon. It's selling the original movie poster. Okay. So we can make sure we're looking at the same thing. So I'm looking at the poster. Okay. I mean, kind of my first impression of this is this is like stylistically looks like one of like the 1950s Day the Earth Stood Still kind of giant robot. Like that's the impression that I'm, hmm. I'm getting from it. Even the font kind of reminds me mm-hmm. of that. It's definitely riffing on the time period that the movie is set in. I think that that robot has that very like simple design to it. It looks like they're having a good time. Like unlike the other poster, where it's more like menacing and mysterious. Wee! I remember the Totoro poster also being kind of ambiguous. Like, is this creature friend or is he a little creepy? Like a good guy? Is a friend? I think the key to that is that kid like fist punch in the air and joy. Like if he was just in his hand, he would be like, "What is this?" Yes, the kid is clearly ecstatic. Yes. <laughs> They seem like they're going to have some hijinks and fun. (laughs) Okay, yes. I guess there's not a lot to unpack from this. From the poster. I'm guessing that it's going to be a situation where there's this thing. Like, is it from outer space? Did somebody make it? I don't know. But there's going to be like, it's a monster. And then you find out it's not really a monster. Or it like learns what it is to be human, you know, kind of deal. That seems like a pretty safe bet. Seems like a fairly safe bet. (laughs) That seems like that would be a safe bet, yes. Which is so like, kind of maybe formulaic. I've seen that movie a lot, so I don't know why people... I guess I'm going to see why people love it so much. Right. If you feel like you know what the movie is going in, what's the point? I would have said before Guardians of the Galaxy that I didn't see how Vin Diesel doing the voice work was a bonus, but he did really good (laughs) with Groot, so... (laughs) I wonder if this is the audition for Guardians of the Galaxy that Vin Diesel (laughs) did. Yes, I definitely think so. <laughs> that this was part of his real... Yeah, like this is pre-Groot. <laughs> so I'm guessing from that he doesn't talk a lot in this. But he does actually have lines in this. Oh, he does. Okay. Yes, he says more than one word. <laughs> the director gives me a lot of confidence that's going to be good too. So I feel like some yes. heartstrings are going to get pulled. I forgot that this had Jennifer Aniston in it. Mm-hmm. It stars Jennifer Aniston and Harry Connick Jr. as well. Fraser's dad is the general. Yeah. Brad Bird does produce really good work that is really emotionally intense that people can connect with. Okay, so he's Incredibles and Ratatouille. Yeah. Yep. Which are both awesome, wonderful movies that have a lot of like poignancy to them as well, which mm-hmm. is what this movie is known for. Is this a Disney movie or a Pixar movie or is this something... I don't think it's Disney. No, it's uh, Warner Brothers. Yeah, it's off-brand. It's not off-brand. I mean, it's Warner Brothers. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so I'm curious to see if this is going to be as emotional and poignant for you as as it was for us or if the formula will be a little too formulaic. This was Brad Bird's first big like dramatic movie because he did The Simpsons and then an episode of a TV series and then Iron Giant and then boom, Pixar. (laughs) Mm -hmm. This was the thing that made him a big deal. I'm confident in his work from what I've seen, but it sounds a little formulaic. So I I really am interested in to see how it plays out. And I just really am glad that we're going to get something that seems maybe a little more lighthearted but still has mm-hmm. some emotional like mm-hmm. impact to it mm-hmm. like everyone has that reaction you guys had <laughs> oh that <laughs> yeah yeah i feel like every person just like kind of picks up their dvd copy or blu-ray copy or whatever and just like hugs it to their chest and is like it's so precious yes i want to hug the movie yes yeah maybe the exact opposite of what we just watched Yes. Yeah, so I tried to give us a little yeah. palate cleanser, a little change of pace here. Yes, <laughs> thank you. It. 
I mean, the posters are really mysterious. I'm kind of seeing why maybe it wasn't as much of a commercial success. Other than the fact that I know this is a good movie, there's nothing that would compel me to see this movie. Right. Yeah, like this poster that we're looking at looks just sort of generic and like a like a straight-to-DVD kind of movie. <laughs> or like a straight-to-VHS movie. I went to see it with my dad and my little sister in theaters. I remember him talking about it afterward. Like, oh, wow, I'm really surprised that this movie was this good. Because he was just yeah. expecting it to be like animated schlock. Yeah. Sometimes like now as an adult, I'll see an animated movie. <laughs> and I'm like, that was way better than it had any right to be. I don't know if you guys have seen Paddington <laughs> or not, but that movie's real good. Oh, really? No, I really need to... I've heard such good okay. things about it. I need to see it. There's a whole Paddington-like cult fandom. They're all about that bear. About that bear. We're stuck here having not seen it. Let's get to the future. We have seen it. Get to the future. Got it. Yeah. Let's jump. Okay. So I notice you have this giant <laughs> robot outside. Yes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Is it a time-traveling robot? Because that seems dangerous. It's a little dangerous. So he's going to open up his chest plate, kind of like Bender, only it's like the TARDIS <laughs> and it's bigger on the inside. <laughs> it's already very big, but then it's even bigger. Wow. This robot has so many influences. And it's not full of cigarettes and liquor, unfortunately. Like Bender. <laughs> like Bender. <laughs> or the TARDIS. Who knows? There might be cigarettes and liquor in the TARDIS. I haven't watched the latest season. I don't know what Jodie Whittaker's doctor is like. <laughs> So let's get in our Iron Giant TARDIS. All right, I'm climbing up the ladder. Clink, clank, clink, clank. (laughs) We're doing Foley work now. (laughs) Creak. I know there's a lot of machinery involved in time travel, but does it really need to be 17 stories high? Yeah, so much turquoise inside of here. Like, this is very 50s right now. Very mid-century modern. Okay, all right. Everybody comfy? Yes. The mid-mod aesthetic is so hot right now. So hot right now. Okay, all right. (laughs) Just mind the lacquer, okay? All right, so... Such a chipper, upbeat robot. <laughs> cha 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 cha. <laughs> Was that 50s? I guess. I don't know. Right. Is it safe to open the hatch now? All right, let's just open the hatch and we're in the future. Oh, look, everything is different. Oh, can we check the midterm results? Somebody find a newspaper. You guys, you need to go vote, all right? Like, find a ride, bring a friend. <laughs> I'm so glad I have these time-traveling <laughs> helpers here. Uh, I guess we're really Hannah's helpers. So if you're listening to this right now in the United States... Get your ass to the polls right now. If you haven't already early voted, which you probably should have because it's easier. Early voting is way easier if you have that in your state, do that. There's probably an organization near you that will take you to the polls if you don't have a ride. And yeah. Yeah, and Lyft is offering free ride. Read up on your propositions and your candidates and go make a decision and participate in democracy. <laughs> it's important. I mean, we talk about time traveling to the future here. This is your chance to make the future. This is your chance to change the future. Go do it. Democracy requires the active participation of its mm-hmm. citizens. Mm-hmm. Go. <laughs> We got real schoolhouse rock there for a second. We did. Schoolhouse rock. 
Is a favorite schoolhouse, schoolhouse rap. Go vote. <laughs> or oh, I'm just a barrel. I'm only a barrel. All right. We're in the future now, and I'm depending on all of you to make it better. So here we are in the presence. We've all seen the Iron Giant now. Mm-hmm. We're all fundamentally changed. <laughs> I'm going to give us the summary for it so we have, like, at least an outline to talk about it so we don't <laughs> have to go, like, scene by scene explaining <laughs> the movie. So I got this summary from IMDb. A young boy befriends a giant robot from outer space that a paranoid government agency wants to destroy. Mm-hmm. I feel like that about covers it. Yeah, I think so. I liked how the agency was very vague and mysterious. I mean, it was the military, I guess. And he was so douchey. <laughs> yes, he was. Are we talking about Manly? Manly's agency that he worked for. He never said what the agency he worked for was. Yeah. Like, he reports the military in some way, but... Yeah, I just assumed he was some sort of military attache. I don't even know what that word means. It just sounds <laughs> good. I mean, I guess he maybe he like worked for the Department of Defense or was it the Department of War back then? I don't know. It's kind of unclear. I mean, he's definitely kind of elbowing the X-Files in the ribs there. X-Files, Men in Black, that kind of thing. Yeah. It's like a a one person, the X-Files, without Scully. (laughs) Yeah, he definitely would have erased people's memories if he had had the flashy thing. Oh, absolutely. Without hesitation. Yeah, I mean, he would have probably made like several entrances into people's houses. I mean, he already had a fairly low standard for, I guess, morality in his just (laughs) investigation and the practice of his fact-finding. Interrogating children, (laughs) drugging them, (laughs) kidnapping them. Right. Pretty much traumatizing children is within the scope of normal operations. For this agency. Right. Whatever it is. I kind of got the impression that he was just some kind of up-jumped guy whose dad is maybe somebody important and they just kind of gave him this job. Like, here, go do this. And he's running around and like... He's Jared Kushner. (laughs) He's given more responsibility than he has any right to have. His job description is vague and unsettling. (laughs) He's Ginger Jared Kushner. Yeah. So the big question, Ryan, did you have all the feels? I love this movie so much. Yay! So much. Yes! Yes! Yay! I knew you would! Like, I was sitting thinking about it. I'm like, am I going to have to tell them I cried? I'm like, nope. I'm going to tell them I cried multiple times in this movie. (laughs) I cry too, even though I've seen it already. I definitely cried. I cry every time. (laughs) I cry every time. Like if you cry every time. I missed it up in the beginning when they lined up the stay, no follow. I go, you stay, no following. Oh, because you remembered the callback at the end? Yeah. I was like... (laughs) but I didn't say anything because I remember the callback. Yeah. It had been long enough for me that I didn't remember. My husband watched it with me for the first time. I didn't realize it was his first time watching it until like halfway through the movie. And I was like, wait a second, you haven't seen this? And he's like, no. (laughs) So I got to vicariously watch somebody else watch it. What was the state of his eyes at the end? Oh, he cried. As soon as the callback happened, (laughs) you say I go no following. You realize, yeah. As soon as you stay started, he was like, I'm going to (laughs) cry. He like reached over and got tissues and then just like bawled. I think the thing that really surprised me the most about this is that it's not really a movie so much about a robot as it is about what it means to have a soul, which was actually a pretty deep examination of what that means. I mean, sort of. Yeah. That to me was extremely fascinating in that movie. They didn't really shy away from that subject or tone it down for kids, you know? Right. Like the movie definitely has a perspective that a soul is a real thing and that it is possible to have one. And it is possible to have one if you are not an organic life form. Mm-hmm. My mom says all good things have a soul. <laughs> 
I saw a uh, quote from Brad Bird where his pitch for the movie was, well, first of all, he dedicated this movie to his sister because his sister was killed in a domestic violence situation by a handgun. Oh, God. Jesus. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Oh, my God. That, ah. Oh. Yeah. Oh, it gets worse because the original story for this was written for Sylvia Plath's children after she committed suicide to comfort them. So. Yes. By her ex-husband. Yes. This movie has a some deep roots of tragedy. But the fact that his sister was killed by a gun that she was shot and that this it has lines like guns kill and i am not a gun yes oh how did sylvia plath kill herself she stuck her head in an oven right okay but his pitch meeting for this was what if a gun had a soul and didn't want to be a gun oh oh that hurts which i think comes through strongly in this like you're saying yeah like the lines like i am not a gun where they have a gun to kill people the whole thing with the deer and then he's like poking the deer like he doesn't quite understand death yet and then there's like kind of tying it back at the end where the kid's like knocked out and you think he might be dead and he's poking him and he doesn't understand about unconsciousness yeah yeah oh and i'm just thinking like as a survivor, a secondary victim of a domestic violence murder, the concept of thinking about what makes a good person, like I've had to go through that in my own work with that population. And I can only imagine if you've lost somebody to that directly and just your philosophy and like how that challenges the existential crisis that comes from it. And I just think it's really beautiful that this this, this movie came out of that. <laughs> thought this movie was absolutely absolutely beautiful and stunning and deserved every bit of praise it got when it came out you know and since then it's i think found its own audience but man i love this movie it was more religious than i remembered they pray at one point and then in the message in general the idea that your soul is something that transcends whatever it is that you happen to inhabit right now right the idea that you know this is just a vessel essentially right it's interesting in a story about a robot well i think anytime you have a story about a robot or an alien the automatic question is is, does this thing have a soul or can it understand what it means to be human? You know, like that is a very classic sci-fi question. Oh, yeah. Which from the perspective of a skeptic and a, a non-believer generally in the supernatural, sometimes when you go talking about souls and I don't know, some sort of sense of self that's higher than just the bodies that we're in, it's an interesting topic to think about. But this movie, mm -hmm. more than I expected, made me feel something. Uh, even though I'm like, uh, you know, I'm a skeptic. I'm an atheist. The whole soul thing, it's still like got me, you know? I don't think they tied it into any specific religion very much, you know? Like they didn't quote any Bible verses or whatever. It was just... Right. Oh, no, not at all. Yeah. They're talking about it. They're looking up at the stars. They're talking about, you know, things that are larger than yourself. But I find in general, the topic of some like sense of who we are is separate from the bodies that we live in is, I think, sort of a supernatural thing that people can believe in or not believe in. Anyway, it's interesting the movie's take on it. One thing I did really like was this idea of sort of self-determination that you can become who you want to be. Like, I really like the whole thing with Superman in there, which, I mean, it's a Warner Brothers cartoon, right? So they own that. But I really like that aspect of it, <laughs> where they had the robot villain, and then they had Superman, and he was kind of caught between wanting to be these two things. There's a scene where he realizes that when he sees guns, 
that triggers violence in him. And there's a part where he puts his hand in front of his face to block him from seeing it. So I thought that was a really cool way of showing taking an active step right. to fight your essentially your programming, right? Literally your programming here. I thought that was very interesting. Yeah, he knows he has a ton of power. It's almost like he's privileged with all of this power and that he has the ability to respond the way he's programmed or choose not to. I also was thinking, I mean, this movie is so much about the Cold War and sort of that paranoia. Oh my gosh, yes. When I was watching this, I was thinking about how soldiers can feel this way also. That they're built to do something. They're built to go to war. They're built to kill. Then they have to come back and fit into a normal life and deprogram themselves again. Mm, I didn't think about that. That's a good point. Yep. Mm -hmm. I'm not a gun. I'm a person. Yeah, that I'm not a gun. I'm not a weapon. Or the survivor, like, you know, one of your parents was committing domestic violence against the other and you grew up with that power dynamic and you absorbed part of it and some of that is your coping mechanism. That moment when you recognize that in yourself and say, I'm not a gun... It's pretty. It's a pretty powerful one. So yeah, I really liked that. That he had to struggle with understanding all these new concepts, and then a soul wasn't like bestowed upon him in essence. I mean, he had consciousness, right? But he had to develop that human side of himself. I really liked that a lot. He had to develop empathy. Yeah, I mean, there's a Simpsons episode that talks about this, where Lisa is telling Bart about this idea about a soul that you're not born with a soul. You have to like through struggle earn one. I always thought that was a very interesting episode of The Simpsons. It's an early episode of The Simpsons where Bart prays for like a snow day and then his prayer is answered <laughs> quote unquote right because he gets the snow day and he wants to go out and like play in the snow and sled and all that stuff and Lisa was like you asked for this you got it you need to honor this you know I thought that was interesting and I felt like this one in the same way had that idea that it's through kind of a struggle against what we inherently are built to be to what we can be I really liked the thing with the Superman logo that he made for himself and that was his ideal his hope for what he could be mm -hmm. Superman Do to be fair, they did do a lot of stuff to cheat their way to making him seem more sympathetic. Like, they made him more human, human-esque, than he necessarily needed to be. Which I understand for a children's movie. Right. But they did stuff like, in order to refuel, he has to literally put stuff in his mouth. Like, why? Uh-huh. He has to eat. <laughs> yeah. Like, he yes. does things like, sort of, gasp and cough. <gasps> yeah. He does human-sounding things with his breath. Mm -hmm. I also appreciated all the callbacks to, sort of, 1950s robots. Like, there's a lot of stuff from The Day the Earth Stood Still, especially when he starts turning into the weapon and starts blasting stuff. Yeah, he really transforms. Yeah. There's another movie that came out this same year that's about Sputnik called October Sky, which is fantastic if people haven't seen it. Oh, yeah, I remember that. Okay. Yeah, it's pretty pretty darn good. <laughs> is that Jake Gyllenhaal? It's one of the Jake Gyllenhaal or Tobey Maguire or someone kind of, I don't necessarily want to say bland, but bland <laughs> white guy from that time. One of yeah. those brunette boys. Topher Grace? I don't know. Somebody like that. Not Topher you know? Grace, really? He probably auditioned for that role, though. Topher Maguire. <laughs> yeah. Jake Gyllenhaal. Yeah, that's what I thought. And Chris Cooper and Laura Dern. I mean, it sucks that this movie didn't really find its audience at the time, both because Warner Brothers, I think, didn't know what they had and how to promote it. And also, it opened the same weekend that The Sixth Sense opened. And mm. that movie was oh, a yeah. phenomenon runaway hit that just crushed oh, everything. Oh, yeah. Damn you, Shyamalan. That was a smash hit. Yeah, Sixth Sense is pretty good, though. But the reason that I saw that movie was because everything else in the theater then was not something that my dad felt okay bringing both me and my sister to. So he took us to see this movie. Like, I saw it in the theater, and it was like an almost empty theater. And so you go in, and you're like, oh, man, this is not going to be good. <laughs> and then, like, like 
my dad laughed, he cried, like he had the whole <laughs> gamut of emotions. So that was interesting to see. It's really, the writing is great. The animation is great. The whole, th oh God, the animation is so good. While I was watching it, it's funny to think about a camera in animation. Like it's common now when they do computer animation that they actually animate the camera itself to move around. Right, they have a virtual camera. But in this one, this is all hand-drawn except for the Iron Giant itself. So that was CG, right? Like the CGI part, it felt smoother. Yeah, they actually had to add in a program to make it ripple so that it would like have that hand-drawn variance. Oh, okay. Yeah, because I was like, how are they integrating this? Everyone else is hand-drawn. He's computer done. But this movie, you can see like actual shots that are happening and the camera moving and like it looks like a real movie that just happens to be animated. Yeah. A lot of the shots were more... <laughs> We've been doing horror movies for the past month and I felt more like gut-level horror at some of these shots than I did at most of the runtime of these movies we've been watching at the beginning. Yeah. Well, I think this movie establishes the characters, right? Right. That the horror comes from the bad things that are happening to the characters that they're going to do. And just the way that the shots were composed, it felt like Cloverfield or like he's a kaiju or something. Like he's this monstrous, just sort of unfathomable size in a lot of these shots where he slowly turns his head and it's like what you thought was a structure is a moving, living being is terrifying. And also the juxtaposition between him and the forest, too. Like, you're like, oh, pretty mean forest. Oh! Right, yeah, those two moments where it's like, Jesus Christ! Yeah, when you don't know for sure that he's good yet. The eyes. Yes, the eyes are so well done and used to such great effect in those early scenes. In the whole movie, for different reasons. Yeah. Well, they just really, they found that Jung would call it an archetype. They're like, oh yeah, this is something that everybody has deep buried within them. This is like a evolutionary fear that we have of looking up in the dark and seeing two eyes, predator eyes, next to each other staring at you. Yeah, we're hardwired, I think, to recognize that as dangerous. Yeah, you get that feeling. Mm -hmm. Eyes in the darkness. It's dangerous, so that happens a lot. The overall acting in this, too, was surprisingly good. Like, Jennifer Aniston is in this, and I didn't recognize her as Jennifer Aniston at first. <laughs> oh, I immediately, I was like, oh, that's not his mom, that's Rachel from Friends. <laughs> <laughs> she didn't have the Rachel speech pattern, though. <laughs> Oh, oh, honey. Nope. <laughs> I also really, really liked Harry Connick Jr. in this movie. Yeah, he was great. He was so good. Yes! I was like, oh. you are so cool. <laughs> I really like you. Oh. All of the voice acting was amazing. And he is. Like, he's just such a chill cat. I mean, <laughs> I've known people who played with him, and he's basically like that in real life. <laughs> you know people who play with Harry Connick Jr.? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, our music comes from <laughs> personal friends that Hannah has, you know? like Dang. Yeah, I went to the music school that I attended for a while has a fabulous jazz program. So the uh, lab band for the jazz program has won multiple, multiple wow. Grammys. So, huh. yeah, I was not good enough for the jazz program, but it, we had kind of <laughs> joked about this being Vin Diesel's audition for Groot. Yes. Yeah, we but did. I really do think that he showed that he can do a lot with very few words. Like the Iron Giant has 50 something words in this movie. Yep. That he says, you know, and some of them repeated. Yes. But he conveys depth of character like 
Everyone in this movie is, this is such a basic filmmaking thing, but there's so many times where it doesn't happen. Everyone in this movie is different at the beginning of the movie than they are at the end of the movie, including the robot. And the way that they animate his face also does a lot to lend emotion to the voice acting, even though he has very little that he can say, especially the way that the eyes work. And even the jaw a little bit, the way that he's able to sort of smile, even though he by no rights should be able to smile. <laughs> should be not be able to, yeah. Right. <laughs> Another cheat that they sort of sneak in there. It articulates to side to side, yeah. Yeah, his jaw doesn't just go up and down, which, why do you have a jaw in the first place? I guess if that's your fuel hole that you <laughs> want to intelligently design. Yeah, he needs to chew, chew, chew. Right. <laughs> the way that they animate his eyes in particular. And the aliens that made him are fucking terrifying. Oh, that's a whole other thing we could talk about. Yes. Oh my God, terrifying. Can we talk about that for a minute? Jesus. There's more than one of him that they have. Okay, so there is a deleted scene from this movie that shows his memories of what they have done to other planets. And I think it's like him and a bunch of other robots his size just like straight up destroying other planets. And so obviously there is an intelligent species that created him and that they are going to eventually destroy the Earth. It kind of reminds me of in the new Star Wars movies when you first meet Finn, that there's all these faceless people like burning and killing and destroying and then you see the actual taking off of the helmet, the revealing of the human underneath. I was thinking about that a little bit. He kind of gets marked with the handprint on his face. This giant gets marked with the dent in his head. Yes. I found this movie just to be an absolute delight. Like, I am so... I guess I'm answering the question before it's even asked. I'm so happy I saw this. (laughs) Yeah, same. I just can't contain my joy. (laughs) Yeah. I just love, like, the style that the movie is done in, the animation style, is so Norman Rockwell. Like, it is so firmly, like, 1950s America. I wasn't sure where this took place, but I had this strong sense of, like, this story is set in Maine, like, immediately. (laughs) And, I mean, you were talking about Norman Rockwell, like, the name of the town is Rockwell. Thanks, Stephen King movies. Mm-hmm. The movie was made in the 90s and it's set in the 50s and it still holds up in 2018. The visual style of it still holds up in 2018. I don't want to say it looks dated, but it definitely does not look... I think most animation now is computer animated and this is definitely hand-drawn. I think it holds up to modern-day hand-drawn animation. I would agree. I'm not saying the animation is bad by any stretch. Yes, we still occasionally get hand-drawn animation and this still felt like that. And the way that they seamlessly integrated, I was noticing that the robot, his movements were sort of smoother than everything else, which I was like, okay, so that must be CGI. The way it almost seemed purposeful that they made him seem otherworldly a little bit by using CGI intentionally to animate him and then just hand-drawn for everything else was good, was great. Because he's not from this world, right? It just subtly tells you he's different. Right, that made him seem special. I say him, even though he's probably genderless. Yeah, and I just love, like, how they did the shading in the scenes. Like, when he jumped in the water and he's cold, the outlines (laughs) on his flesh is blue. (laughs) I remember seeing that at the time and going, like, that's good art. (laughs) That's really cool. There are probably a lot of stills from this movie that are up on people's walls. Brad Bird is amazing talent, but when you know that he made this movie to honor his sister, you can tell that he poured his, like, heart and soul into this movie. You know, it's way, way better than its budget or focus that it got. You know, it needed to be for that. Yeah. It's very existential for a children's movie. Yes. I really like that. Like, actually, if you were an existential therapist, like, you would sit down with a child 
world and show this movie to them. Yeah, the way that it confronts death is is fairly unflinching, actually, for a children's movie. Yeah, there's a line in there. It's what is it? It's bad to kill, but it's not bad to die. Right. Everything dies. Yeah. I mean, that that's kind of it in a nutshell. And then also, like, you are the meaning that you make. You are who you choose to be. That your design, the purpose that you think you're meant for, isn't written in the stone or in the stars. This movie has so many layers that could be very complex for children. But rather than have people make big speeches about them, they show you through action what those things really mean. Yeah. You know, and I think that that's a very good way of showing and not telling. Yeah, the dialogue is not actually that plentiful, I guess. I mean, there's a lot of Hogarth yelling at the giant, <laughs> with the giant just sort of cocking his head like a puppy in response, like, <laughs> but it doesn't feel like there's a ton of dialogue in this movie. You'll basically have adults who make almost like thesis statements for what it means to be a human or what this movie is about. And then through action and choices and sacrifice that characters have to make, you see the truth of those statements. That's good storytelling. Were there any best parts that stuck out in particular? I like that this movie doesn't dump down its message for kids that assumes kids are smart and can figure it out. Hannah, you had mentioned this is something that kids might watch maybe in like a therapy session or something. Like the best movies like this give complex ideas to children in a way that they can touch and grapple with and understand without dumbing them down. I think you get that in things like Zootopia, Inside Out, movies like that where there are ideas that could seem too complex for children, but are delivered in a way that is understandable. I think that's the best part. Was there anything that you didn't like about it? Nope. Literally nothing. There's literally nothing I would change in this movie. (laughs) Wow. That's a lot to say. That is a big statement. I mean, in most movies, I can go back and say like, oh, this wasn't that great. Or, you know, you could have done this better, but everything worked on its own and as a larger whole. I guess the only thing I would say is the deleted scenes you guys are talking about for the aliens aren't in just the regular cut of the movie. And they shouldn't have been cut from the theatrical release. The extra couple minutes you add to the runtime of the movie, I think is well worth it. Yeah. Although it does introduce the sort of dawning horror of they're coming back. Like, yeah, they're going to come. <laughs> this doesn't end here. What about you guys? Did you have any parts that you thought were the, the best or worst moments of the movie? Uh... No, the everything was good. I was trying to think of something we haven't already talked about. Like the kid actor who played Hogarth was also great. That's such an easy thing to get wrong is the earnest, enthusiastic child protagonist. Yeah, I really like that. He acted like a child would act, but like a smart child would act, but not like sitcom smarmy smart. Right. In certain circumstances, he was still petulant and annoying even, but believable, but not in like a gritty realistic way, in like an idealized version of the 50s kind of way. I also really like that the military did go to attack him based on the information they had. But I liked that the general, once he had different information, also changed his behavior. Right. It was the little power hungry social climber of the military who was determined to make a name for himself. Yeah. Not even the real actual military man, just the, I mean, essentially the politician. I mean, I guess if I had to pick a part that I would change is you probably can't launch a nuclear weapon by grabbing a phone from somebody and screaming into it. No, you cannot. <laughs> probably not. But it's a kid's movie, so I'll accept it. Yeah, like two people have to initiate the launch sequence. The president has to issue a code that's generated like several times a day. The other <laughs> yeah. thing that I was reading is that the, you know, the submarine, the jets, the actual army, like all that stuff is completely accurate for that moment in time. Like not just in the way that they look, but 
like the number of things they bring, the way they organize themselves when they set up, the way their uniforms look, that's all very accurate. Considered one of the most screen accurate depictions of the military. Yeah, the jets actually fly like jets. They're the first jet that's launched by, like not mechanically launched, but launched by, I want to say steam. When they get launched, that's how they get launched off that carrier. I didn't notice like, that at all. It's very accurate the way those oh. military stuff is. I forgot how much this movie was about the Cold War and about history. And I, I wonder if that contributed maybe to people not connecting with it originally because it was so removed from our lives then, our daily experiences. We weren't alive then. I mean, in 1999, at least two movies I can think of about the launch of Sputnik happening came out in that year. So the people who grew up then were at the age where they were making movies. Yeah. But those were more about, you know, striving for exploration, like the idealized. Right. Right. But there's in all of those movies, there's the fear of the Russians and what they're going to do that we're losing. You know, that there's something up there. We don't know what it is and we need to catch. I got a, a sense of the deep, pervasive fear in this watch through of the movie that I don't think I got originally. It was a part of their daily lives that, oh yeah, duck and cover, go to a shelter, the bomb will fall soon. That shaped an entire generation. Yeah, I had to do duck and cover drills. We had earthquake drills and we had duck and cover. Uh, I think we just had fire drills. We had tornado drills. I did like that when they were about to get nuked and all the civilians were wondering whether they should go to the like fallout shelter or whatever and the military was like, it doesn't matter. Yeah. There's nothing you can do to survive this. Hannah, I guess we were between the duck and cover nuke drill era and the active shooter drill era that came after us because we didn't really have that either. I started sixth grade the year after Columbine happened, I think. Did you ever have to do an active shooter drill? Yeah. <laughs> I've never had to do one. But I mean, definitely the specter of school shootings loomed over my experience right. of school. I guess that was kind of our Cold War. I don't know. <laughs> and I can see how the more conservative people of the generation who was orchestrating and part of the Cold War, not necessarily the kids who grew up under it, wouldn't be super jazzed about a movie about the Cold War that is critical of militarization. Right. Because, I mean, that is the default response here is to shoot, to kill it and destroy it before it can reveal itself to be a threat. And this movie is saying, not, don't do that. What would happen in real life if some unknown giant thing just showed up one day? Would we actually start shooting at it? Like, without even trying to make contact? Absolutely. I don't think so. I think we would at least... <sighs> I think the people who have the capability to make those kind of decisions will shoot first. I guess it depends on who's in power. I don't think it matters whether you're liberal or conservative. Yeah. I think the willingness to seize power makes you the type of person who will shoot first in that situation. I, I just believe that to be true. I don't know if I'm right or wrong. I think that's just my take on human nature, that we shoot first. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think Stephen Hawking even weighed in on this at some point because they were asking him like, oh, what would it be like, you know, if aliens came? And he's like, well, we have examples of more technologically advanced civilizations encountering less technologically advanced civilizations. And that resulted in genocide. So it would not be good for us if aliens showed up. But I mean, the whole idea of whether there is intelligent life or not is like, does it even exist at the same time as you do? Yeah. I mean, he could have been, you know, just robots that were left over from this giant war where they had already wiped each other out. There's a particular paradox that they talk about. So he could be, you know, just the lone leftover weapon from the war. The nuclear eye of the 
needle that you have to get through, like the capability to destroy yourself without the wisdom not to. Oh, the Fermi paradox. Okay, so the, the Fermi paradox is why haven't we detected any signs of alien life? And there are a lot of theories about why. And the scary one is that it is impossible for civilizations to progress beyond a certain point, And that is why there are none out there. And one of the ideas about why that is true is at some point, if you become technologically advanced enough to advance into the stars, you inevitably destroy yourself. Right. It's called the Great Filter. Depressing! (laughs) Oh, it was such a happy movie. Now I'm all sad. We're fucked, people. (laughs) It's a happy movie, but it has these sad sort of undertones underneath it. Yeah, that's true. I think it was more contemplative than sad. Okay, yeah. Yeah. I'll take that. I'll take contemplative. There's some sadness that's kind of part of things. Like, where's Hogarth's dad? He's got this helmet that he wears and it's too big for him. Well, there's a picture of him as a Korean War Oh yeah, pilot. There's a picture sitting on the mantle. So he clearly died in the Korean War. I guess. Yeah, she's a single mom in the 50s. There's photos of the dad in his like flight gear you know, and if this is mid-1950s that would make the Korean War where he would have you know, went to and been able to father Hogarth. I don't recall anything directly saying that he had died though. No, they didn't say it. No, but I don't know if you've ever had had service members that die, but you usually will see their pictures on the mantle just like that. Very common. Prominently displayed, yeah. I think that might be not too dark for kids, but add layers into it that you can watch and catch as an adult that you don't necessarily want to put on kids. Well, no, they didn't have the flag. Oh, true, the folded up triangle flag, the framed one. Do you get one if you're a POW? I don't know. Hmm, depressing also. Sorry, it's a movie about war. Another thing I thought was really funny that they cheated on to make him seem more human is that his stomach growled when he was hungry. True. Oh, yeah. That is the silliest (laughs) thing to build into a machine. Like, why? Yes, it should go beep boop. There should be an indicator light. (laughs) Yeah, no, you're right. They did do a lot of things to humanize him. I mean, since we're talking about that, like, the physics of consuming metal... Absolutely not. And then converting that into energy. No, mm -mm, no, I'm going to stop thinking about that because that's not how things work. (laughs) (laughs) It would have been, I think, maybe more realistic if it was the electricity and not the metal that was powering. Like he needed to hit up electric plants and like stick his finger in the plug or whatever. That might have been a little more realistic. (laughs) But even that is, you know, science fantasy. Yeah, it'd be silly. I mean, pushing my glasses up on my nose. (laughs) We're talking about science. Well, I mean, we're turning a little bit of a critical lens on the film, and I think that's fair. You should consider things that you love. Uh, this movie does not pass the the test where two women talk to each other about not a man. Two named characters. Bechdel. Oh, the Bechdel test. It fails the Bechdel test. Uh, it's also 100% white, right? It is 1950s Maine. I mean, we had talked about that in Shawshank. Even now, even today, Maine is the state with the highest percentage population of, you know, white or Caucasian citizens. Like, it's not a diverse place. So you found this to be a very white male film? But not in the normal sense of like, oh, white male equals aggro, kind of. For a film that is white male perspective, it is more empathetic and more subtle. Yeah. Well, the true villain of the piece was really the most toxically masculine one. Like, Hogarth isn't. Dean isn't. He's creative and nurturing and caring. He's a sexy artist. (laughs) I'll say it. That cartoon is a sexy artist. He's what women actually want. (laughs) 
<laughs> oh, that movie. Oof. When he first reaches down to interact with Hogarth, the giant, I felt like, is this what, like, when you meet a very small animal for the first time, like a kitten or something, is this what it feels like from the perspective of the kitten to be just, like, utterly outmatched and loomed over at the mercy of this huge predator in front of you? Probably. Yeah. It was terrifying. Like, those first moments before we realize that he's open to suggestion. He first does this thing where he, like, sits down abruptly when he's, like, meeting Hogarth when you realize, oh, okay, he's not actually a terrifying monster. But before that, pretty much every time you see him, the way that they shoot, I guess, quote-unquote, shoot him, like a horror movie, is, like, monstrous. When he first lands, he is, like, a weapon, right? Until he gets electrocuted and hit in the head and becomes, like, a blank slate. That's another fridge horror moment where, after the fact, you think about it, like, oh, huh, I guess if all it takes to reset him is a bump on the head, would a nuclear blast maybe reset the resetting? (laughs) Maybe. Yeah, well, the EMP would have. That goes to, is he programming or does he have a soul? Right. Right. Yep. If he's just programming, then yeah, you can reset him, right? But if he now has a soul, then that doesn't get reset. I mean, he could be a Dalek. There's a little mushy brain-shaped creature on the inside. Yeah, there's a little mushy, vulnerable thing deep down inside of the Iron Giant. Imagine if the Daleks were voiced by Vin (laughs) Diesel instead of... (laughs) (laughs) Exterminate. (laughs) What's that movie he's in with about stockbrokers? That's pretty good. Vin Diesel? He's in a movie about stockbrokers? Yes, and it's a really good movie. Wow. He's not a bad actor. He's got some chops, yeah. Yeah, no, I don't think anybody was arguing that he's a bad actor. I know he was in a movie about stockbrokers in the 90s. He was in Saving Private Ryan, Iron Giant, Boiler Room. That's the name of the movie I'm thinking of. Boiler Room is a good Vin Diesel movie. (laughs) Boiler Room. Yes, it's pretty good. There you go, guys. Watch (laughs) Boiler Room. Got the PCC stamp of approval. (laughs) Well, at least one of us, right? You guys haven't seen it. (laughs) The Ryan stamp of approval. I mean, I don't approve things without... Yeah, you don't want to just rubber stamp our approvals here. It's one-third approved. I've said everything I need to say about this movie, other than you should immediately go watch it. Yep. Yeah. If you haven't watched it, go watch it. Bring some tissues. It's on Netflix. Check it out, man. It's a very low barrier to watch it. Thankfully, it is on Netflix. It was such a refreshing change to have a movie assignment. <laughs> we could just go stream. For sure. Which is proof that we don't plan these things out before we confess them. Because we don't check to no, see where we they're... do not. We do not. <laughs> this feels like a similarly with my neighbor Totoro that if I had kids I would say high priority list for watching. I would Mm -hmm. think so too. I was actually really shocked that I did not own a physical copy of this movie. Some killer special features. Like those deleted scenes, the making of, there's a whole documentary about it. The interviews with Jen Aniston. Alright, so Ryan, I think this is merely a formality at this point, but are you glad you watched it or was that an hour and a half you will never get back? You know, we come here and we confess our sins and this movie made me think about that sin hurts you as a person (laughs) as much as it hurts others around you that i shortchanged myself the experience of seeing this movie only hurting yourself (laughs) so i'm glad i've rectified myself with the universe and set things right go forth and sin no more my son (laughs) you are absolved (laughs) what about you guys glad that you watched this again oh completely yeah i actually i've been having a rough week and so this film like i watched it last night i was like this is exactly what i need yep it's like it's a hug it's a hog hug (laughs) as it said on his gun (laughs) 
<laughs> All right. So that was the Iron Giants. If you like what you heard, go give us a quick review on iTunes. You can find us at popcultureconfessions.com and follow us on Twitter at, at PCCCast. We'll even give you a shout out on air if you tweet or review us. If you have any pop culture confessions of your own, send them in to us. You can email us at popcultureconfessions at gmail.com. Perfect. Send it right there and we will read them on the air. Popcultureconfessions at gmail.com. Yeah. Our jingle. <laughs> Speaking of jingles, many thanks to Wax Logic for the use of their sweet groove. All right, guys. It's actually come up for me several times this week. I got some stuff I got to talk to you Uh-oh. about. Oh, really? Real talk with Hannah? <laughs> mm-hmm. Turn that chair around. I need some real talk time with you guys. Oh. <laughs> for once. Oh. It's not people coming to me for the oh, real talk. Okay. I'm coming to you for the real Counselor, talk. Counselor, counsel thyself. So you want us to, like, give you the straight dope? Yeah, give me the straight dope, but, you know, like, actively listen and still make me feel good. Well, with my love of the 90s, I will now turn my chair around and sit on it so that you know that I'm real right yeah turn the chair around straddle it Mm -hmm. you've turned your cap backwards yep (laughs) there's some r&b in the background we're good to go i've got my fist under my chin and i'm making eye contact Mm, yes so i have never seen tune in next episode to hear hannah's pop culture confession can we fix it yes we can maybe 